So, I absolutely loved Jesse's message two weeks ago, where he explored the Old Testament story of Jacob and wrestling with God in Genesis chapter 32. A very captivating truth kind of emerged for me. God changed Jacob's name in that story. He changed Jacob's name to Israel. And subsequently, his Old Testament children were called the Israelites. That word literally means people that struggle with God or people who wrestle with God. You move into the New Testament and Jesus comes and he introduces a a new covenant. And as a result, all people are invited to come and, and be God's children. It's no longer about a physical people group. Check John chapter 12 or John chapter 1 verse 12. But I believe the principle followed. If he wanted his Old Testament children to be identified as people that wrestle with him, then it only makes sense to me and translates that he still wants his children to be people that wrestle with him. And then Jesse gave this illustration of of, of him, a big, strong man wrestling with his young son and, and, and the satisfaction and the joy that he gets, even though he could... He could overpower his son in a moment, but the joy that he gets in in wrestling with him and watching his son test out his muscles and try his strategies and and work um, and the relationship that is built in the process, uh, it just opened up a whole new window for me uh, when it comes to wrestling with God and, 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 and working through tough, tough questions. I've always believed because of what the Psalms are all about and because of some Old Testament prophets and and how they wrestled with God. I've always believed that God uh, invited this or or at at the very least accommodated this, put up with this, but I've never before quite captured or realized or seen the fact that God delights in having his children wrestle with him. And then Jesse kind of Use that to build a bit of a safety net, and, and that felt good for me, from which to ask tough questions. God is big enough. He can handle your challenges and your doubts and your questions. Engage him and wrestle with him. I heard a song on the radio a year or two ago, and it connected with me because of how it humbly does exactly this. The song is called, I'm Just Asking by Tennille Towns. Actually, the song is called Jersey on the Wall, but it fairly quickly after it came out got kind of this nickname, uh, I'm Just Asking. Uh, because of copyright laws, we can't actually show it here via video right now, but I can encourage you to go after the message today, not right now, but after the message today, I can encourage you to go and Google it, uh, Tennille Towns, I'm Just Asking. And if you do, you're going to hear her beautifully uh, sing these words. If I ever get to heaven... You know, I got a long list of questions. Like, how do you make a snowflake? Or are you angry when the earthquakes? How does the sky change in a minute? How do you keep this big rock spinning? Why couldn't you stop that car from crashing? Forgive me, I'm just asking. You don't have to answer now, oh, but someday, if I ever get to heaven, I got a long list of questions. If you got your hands on everything that happens, 
then why couldn't you stop that car from crashing? Forgive me. I'm just asking. We believe that God invites that humble wrestling and questioning. And so this morning, I want to tackle another quest, tough question together with you. And if you read your bulletin email, then you are hopefully nodding your head in agreement um, with me. I will speak about something that I definitely do not have the final answer on. There are solid, uh, you know, world-renowned biblical scholars that have a variety of opinions when it comes to this this tough question, and so not for a moment am I going to pretend that I have the final uh, uh, answer to this question, but what I will do, what I will do is what I do when I encounter tough questions. I will zoom out, partially because of my character, partially because I think that's the wisest way to approach tough questions, especially tough biblical questions, is to zoom out and start with the big picture, and then slowly work your way toward the smaller, more specific questions. Some people, when they encounter tough questions, they zoom in. And and I'll be honest, I, I don't think that's wise, because what you normally need when you're encountering a tough question, or you're up against a tough question, is a bigger perspective, not a smaller perspective. Again, especially when it comes to the Bible, because the Bible was written over such a long period of time, completely different cultures, completely different languages, even, you know, within the Bible, from one section of the Bible to the other, there's a vast difference in time and in cultures and in languages, never mind from the Bible time to today. And so I, I encourage a bigger perspective rather than a smaller perspective. And so zoom out. So... If you did not get a chance to read our bulletin email, uh, you are wondering by now what the tough question is. The tough question for this morning is this. Uh, and here's how it was given to us. What is your theology on hell? Eternal torment? Still a chance to be saved? Annihilation? Question mark. Now, do you see why I've been making my introduction as long as possible? This is not an easy question. And you go, duh, isn't that what you asked for? You asked us to send you tough questions. So we did, didn't we? Not so sure anymore that was a great idea. And then on top of that, get this. This week, Jesse decides that he's going for holidays. And so he leaves me with this tough question. Pretty slick, isn't it? Actually, truth be told, I chose this question. You guys made the list and you sent it to us and, and Jesse and I, we went through the list and, and we choose, we chose which questions we were going to tackle or which ones we were going to speak about. So And so it's not fair for me to throw Jesse under the bus on this one. I'm actually guessing that there's some of you that are suggesting right now in your heads that we, we just rather not talk about this. It's uncomfortable and it's di quite difficult. And, and, and quite honestly, I feel that probably uh, partially in reaction to the hellfire and brimstone preaching uh, that I grew up with that happened in my era of being a child, um, modern North, America, Christ uh, North American Christianity has kind of simply decided that we're not going to talk about it. And, and, and so we kind of ignore it. 
And granted, that's one way to approach a tough question. Uh, probably not the best way, not the way that I would suggest, but it is one way and probably the most common way for North America, especially North American Christianity, modern Christianity, to approach this tough question. See, it kind of feels like this, this hell thing is, a, is kind of a glitch on the radar of the good news of Christianity. I read one theologian that suggested that the traditional view of hell has probably created more atheists than anything else that Christians have done or said. I think he's probably right. So the question was asked quite personally in this case, what is your theology on hell? So I'm going to share my thoughts and opinions. Let me be very clear. This is one issue that I'm very much wrestling with. I do not have the final answer on this one. See, I think very differently about this now than I did 30 or 40 years ago. I even think differently about this now than I did 10 years ago. And so it only makes sense that I admit already that I will probably think differently about this in another 10 years from now also. This is wrestling with God and wrestling with my theology. And so I ask you for grace. I ask that you listen and that you wrestle together with me. This is not about me being right and you being wrong or you being right and me being wrong. Remember, one of the defining characteristics of God's children is that they wrestle with him. Now, I hope that you're still with me. Now, let me give you a brief word of assurance. This will not be a hellfire and brimstone message. I told you already, I grew up in that era, and there is nothing that so consumed me with fear as a young child as, I think, the well-meaning hellfire preaching that I endured as a young child. I remember lying on my bed at night in this, this unbelievable heaviness and, and oppression and just debilitating fear and ominousness of the, the concept of forever hellfire. Honestly, I, I'm amazed that I was not psychologically affected for the rest of my life. I think it was the grace of God that saved me from permanent scarring. It was horrible. What was happening inside of me psychologically was horrible. And it resulted from this hellfire and brimstone preaching that I endured as a, as a, as a young child. I think it was well-meaning, but it was horrible. So this will not be a torturous session on hellfire. Here's what I will do. I already told you I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to zoom out. So in that process of zooming out, I will uh, do what I usually do when I encounter tough questions is I start by quickly doing a bit of a review of a few facts about what I know about the character of God. A few facts about the character of God. And then I'm going to make some observations. I'm going to make some observations about how hell is talked about in the Bible. And then I'm going to go out on a limb and make some personal statements. And I hope that all of this will somehow be helpful as you think about this tough question. So first off, big picture. Who is God? What does the Bible say about God and his character? First of all, let me say this. God is all in all. 
This causes me some problems, but as I read the Bible, I see it again and again. God is all in all. See, as humans, we tend to think that God is at some places and he is not at other places. He is in some parts of my life and he is not in other parts of my life. He is active in some situations and he is not active in other situations. Some things point to God and other things don't point to God. And we somehow categorize and believe that some things can exist without God having his hand in it. Listen to a few different scriptures. Colossians chapter 1, thank you, Brendan, for reading that for us earlier. Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 17. He is the firstborn over all creation. By him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. One of the verses that you were challenged to memorize last summer, also in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Ephesians 4, verse 4 to 6, There is one Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. God is all in all. There are many more scriptures that point to this thought or concept. Uh, I'm not going to repeat them all here, or I'm not going to give them all to you, but, but there's others. Uh, this is just a sampling. God is all in all, and I mean all in all. All. When you strip everything away, somewhere you get to the root, and there is God. I know that creates other questions, and I'm okay with that, but the Bible is clear. God is all in all. Secondly, many times when I've been asked different questions about the end of time, and God's judgment, and, and hell, and people who have never heard, etc., etc., I reply with something like this. I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know that God is a God of justice. Way beyond how I even understand the word, God is a just God. You don't have to be afraid that God will be unfair. I know that the small earthly picture often makes it look that way, but in the big picture, God is a just God. This truth, again, is sprinkled throughout the Bible. Psalm 111, verse 7, the works of his hands are faithful and just. Isaiah 5 16, the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice. I don't know what will or what won't happen. I don't know exactly what I believe about hell. I know this. God is a God of justice. Three, I also know that God is love. God is not just a God of love. The Bible says God is love. It is his identity. It is what characterizes him at the core of his being. Whatever happens, whatever hell is or isn't, it will not conflict with his identity of being a God that is love. That identity will not be compromised. And I might add, and I believe this is important, 
God does not change into another being when you die or when the world as we know it comes to an end. We get that impression sometimes. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. God loves me now. God loves everyone now. Oh, but just you wait until after you die or after the world comes to an end. Look out. Then he becomes the judge. There's nothing anywhere that gives us a right to assume that God's identity and character will change when the world comes to an end. If God is love now, then God will still be love after he comes back and the world comes to an end. God is love. I know that. Four, we also know that God is holy and that in his holiness, he cannot accept sin. He is pure and right and just and holy and anything sinful would compromise that and cannot be accepted. The Bible tells us that our sin separates you from God and the wages of sin is death. His holiness requires that sin be paid for. And in my understanding of the big picture, it was God's incredible love that we just finished speaking about combined with this holiness that together bring about his grace and mercy, which exercised itself in a dramatic way on the cross where Jesus died. With his dying breath, Jesus said, it is finished. The debt is paid in full. For simple, overriding, big picture facts about who God is. Now let me transition. Let me transition and move into making a few observations. Observations uh, that are a little bit more specific, that speak a little bit more about how hell is or isn't uh, spoken about in the Bible. Observation number one. In the Bible, from beginning to end, there is a great epic battle going on between good and evil. Some would choose other words, maybe between right and wrong, or between sin and righteousness, or maybe something else. I will simply say between good and evil. It begins in the third chapter of the book of Genesis, and it continues throughout the whole rest of the Bible, and it finally comes to an end in the last chapters of the last book of the Bible in Revelation. Revelation is a book that, uh, that speaks about ultimate victory of God and good, and the ultimate demise of the devil and evil. I strongly encourage you not to spend much time trying to form specific end-time theology Based on the book of Revelation, let me remind you, it is an allegory. It is a vision with all kinds of word pictures. And ultimately, it simply assures us that this great epic battle that this Bible has been speaking about from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the centuries and the generations, that that great epic battle between good and evil is coming to a head at some point in the future. And he wants to assure us that the winner of that great epic battle that has been happening and raging throughout the centuries, 
that the winner of that great epic battle is good and God over the devil and evil. And so continue, the encouragement in the book of Revelation is to continue to pursue God and good because God and good will win over the devil and evil. And I have observed that the words heaven and hell are connected to this great epic battle or conflict. Heaven being the destiny of good and the devil or and hell being the destiny of evil and the devil. Observation number two. From the Old Testament to the New, the coming of Jesus was going to be good news of great joy for all people. Somehow, the gospel is good news. And the gospel brings peace and hope. Now, these three remain faith, hope, and love. Jesus tells his disciples that he came to bring good news to the poor and the lame and the blind and the oppressed. And then Jesus commissions his disciples and then later on Paul to also be messengers of the good news. Good news for all people. I can show you scripture after scripture that clearly tells us that the death of Jesus on the cross, God's grace dramatically exercised on the cross has implications for and is good news for all people. Observation number three. The Bible speaks much more about judgment than it does about hell. And every time, and this is important, listen up, and every time that it speaks about judgment, it is speaking about our deeds or our works and not about our faith in Jesus. Did you get that? It's a little troubling for us evangelicals. Every time that the Bible speaks about judgment, it speaks about judgment in the context of our deeds, our actions, our works, and not about, or in correlation to, uh, our faith in Jesus. And nowhere does Jesus or Paul, the two greatest evangelists to ever live, Nowhere do either of them use hell as a motivator for believing in Jesus or accepting Jesus. Again, a little trouble. In fact, Paul never even mentions hell or any type of eternal lostness in his greatest and most comprehensive teaching book about the details of Christianity. That book being the book of Romans. Never once, when Jesus or Paul are asked about being saved or about salvation, do either of them bring up the topic of hell. Observation number four. The Bible speaks much more about restoration than it does about punishment. And even when there is punishment, it seems to be for the purpose of restoration. 
According to what I read in the Bible, read in the Bible, then it is God's will that all things will be restored to their original intent. Check Acts chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. God is in the business of restoring what was broken. Romans chapter 6 speaks much about Jesus more than, it uses those words over and over, Jesus more than restores what Adam broke back in the book of Genesis. Listen to this, back to Colossians chapter 1, the scripture that was read for us at the beginning. Same chapter where it speaks about God being all in all, verses 19 to 20, Colossians 1. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven, whether things on earth, or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The Bible is clear that God is a restoring God. So, this is where I begin sweating. So here are some of my opinions. Here is where I make myself vulnerable. And so here is where I ask you to dig deep and to exercise your grace and recognize that I am wrestling and I invite you to wrestle together with me. Some of my opinions. This, after all, is how the question was asked. Number one, whatever hell is or isn't, it will be spiritual and not physical. And that negates the possibility that it is a physical fire. The Bible is clear that after death, things are no longer physical, but spiritual. Check 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where it speaks about the resurrection. Here we have earthly bodies, then we will have heavenly bodies. So whatever hell is, it's spiritual, not physical. Number two. So then, why does the Bible speak about fire? Good question. Glad you asked. First off, let me just say this, and I believe again this is significant and important, taking context and culture into consideration. In the Bible times, fire was seen as the great purifier. Fire was seen as the great purifier. The agent that would separate the good and the real from the bad and the fake. And so you use fire to purify out the bad and identify or bring to the surface the good. Basically the same action that happens inside a modern day smelter today. So then, this truth that fire in the Bible times was seen as the great purifier. This truth, combined with the fact that God and Jesus and the whole Bible seem much more concerned with the concept of restoring than punishing, bringing things back to the perfection and purity of how God created them in the first place, counteracting the effects of Adam's choice to sin, and the fact that almost always Jesus' teaching on judgment is connected to deeds and actions and works instead of faith, 
and the fact that God is all in all, that everything somehow serves God's will and his ultimate big picture intention or plan. Here's my statement. I believe that hell will be an action of purification, where God will forever eradicate evil, where evil will be done away with. And if you want to use the big word annihilation, yes, I believe in annihilation. I believe that hell will be the annihilation of evil. It will be the one thing that will not be able to withstand the fire of purification. And heaven, on the other hand, will be the new reality where good and truth and goodness and godliness will once again be allowed to reign completely supreme. Hell will be an act of purification. Hell will be the destruction of evil more than the destruction or punishment of people. Opinion number three. And the next few thoughts are closely connected to what I just finished saying. I believe that God's ultimate intent is to restore all things to himself. All things back to their original intent. And if that is true, then I believe that God's character of grace and mercy and love and justice and holiness will not rest until that restoration is completed. Again, I recognize that brings about other questions, and I'm okay with that, but I'm going to leave it there for now. God will not rest until his ultimate intent of complete restoration is completed. Opinion number four. Because I believe that in some sense, judgment and hell is about the judgment and punishment and destruction of evil. And then also on the flip side, the complete freeing or unleashing of good. I believe there will also be some incredible new joy and freedom happening for humanity following judgment. See, I believe all of humanity was created in the image of God. I cannot tell you how often I have watched the frustration of people trapped in addiction and sin and temptation from the extreme to the common, in many ways embodying Paul's dilemma in Romans chapter 7, verses 19 to 25, where Paul speaks about the frustration of still being controlled by the effects of sin. Here's what Paul says, For what I do is not the good I want to do. The evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. It is evil within me that's keeping on doing this. Keep reading and he speaks about being a prisoner of the law of sin that is still at work within him. And then he wonders, who will rescue me from this body of death? And he gives the answer, it will be through Jesus Christ. And so because of what I read in the Bible, I believe that our physical death and judgment, where evil will be eradicated, 
will be the final great release from the control of sin. Romans chapter 6 verse 7 says, Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Friends, I, I can only imagine how people who here on earth have intensely had to deal with the temptation of evil in crazy ways on a daily basis, fighting, Imagine if those people could be freed from any and all control of evil. How they will jump and dance and shout for joy when the evil will be cleansed out of them. Or maybe I can say, say when the evil will be refined out of them. And they will be forever free to live only good. That which the image of God within them has longed to be completely free to do since their birth. And of course, I am, in, I am included in this. And Paul says he is included in this. And you are included in this. Can you imagine life without the continuous bombarding of evil? Wow, that will be incredible. I can only imagine. So, have I given you enough? Have I given you enough to think about and to discuss over lunch? I think so. I'm open to discuss any of this further with you. Uh, I'm going to tell you at the outset, I am not going to argue with anybody. I will tell you as I have today why I believed what I do at this stage. But I will not dogmatically defend my opinions because I recognize that they are far, far from complete. I submit this to you, my church family, and I invite you to continue to wrestle together with me. Amen.
As we leave from here, as we contemplate the uh, the facts, the observations, and the opinions that Darren had to leave with us, as we uh, gather around our dinner tables, uh, our lunch tables, ready to uh, to discuss and dig in. Once again, as I have many times, I encourage you to feel free to reach out to Darren, to me, um, to process these things, to chat a little bit more if you've got questions. Um, we'd love to talk with you about those things so those lines are open and uh, as we close I thought um, I could think of no better benediction than the one found in Romans 8 Romans chapter 8 verses 38 and 39 um, says this for I am sure that neither death nor life neither angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Go in peace.